not only did he change his own magazine, he actually changed the sector. So he's a wonderful example of how leadership can be transformative and can be immediate. Hello and welcome to our What Is Possible podcast. I'm your guest host for today, Julian Batson, Head of Government and Local Authorities at Barclays Corporate Banking. And this podcast will focus on the topic of women leading women and intersectionality. Yes, you might have noticed I'm not a woman leading women. I'm delighted, therefore, to be joined by two people who are. Mario Rodin has edited three magazines, a young women's title called More, which at its height sold 500,000 copies a fortnight. From there, she edited Fashion Glossy L, and after that, moved on to edit Marie Claire, whose global heart-hitting journalism won awards all over the world. In her role as a spokesperson for women, Mari has made several TV appearances on shows ranging from GMTV to Radio 4's Today programme and Question Time. Mari is also a regular contributor to national newspapers and has recently retrained and draws on her leadership experience in her new role as an executive coach. Mari, welcome. Thank you, Julian, for that lovely intro, and it's a pleasure to be included in this podcast. And I'm also delighted to be joined by Sharon Maven who is Professor of Leadership and Organisation Studies at Newcastle University, as well as Chair of the Chartered Association of Business Schools Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Committee, Chair of the University Forum for Human Resource Development, and Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences and of the British Academy of Management. Sharon has led three UK business schools as Dean or Director, and been the first woman appointed to the role of Dean in two of them. Her career-long research passion its experiences of women leaders, women working with women, and unearthing and exploring gender dynamics in organisations. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you, Julian. It's a pleasure. Sharon, I'm now passing over the conversation to you. Thank you. Mari and I would like to begin by checking our own privilege. This is an important context for our discussion. We're white, heterosexual, middle-class, and identify as women. She, her, cisgender. We understand that people express their gender and sexuality in different ways. And today we're talking about issues related to our own experiences as women leaders and to the research on women leaders. So can I start, Maury, by asking you a question? as you have so much experience of leading women as the majority in your teams as editor of Marie Claire. And this is the reverse position to most organizations where men are often in the majority. So what are the key differences when leading a team made up of mainly women? And did you face any opposition? Thank you, Sharon. To be honest, I have never actually worked in a male-dominated environment. So the first thing I have to say is I don't really have too much to compare my work experience with. But um, with the benefit of hindsight and reflecting on the question, I think there are a few main differences. First of all, flexible working when you're leading women is key. For me, my staff were in the 20 to 40s um, age bracket. So th- their key child rearing years, if you like. 
for me as an editor, maintaining talent was a priority. You, you won in the magazine game by hanging on to your best people. And it was a competitive market. So um, other magazines were always chasing the best people. So I had a strategy of um, satisfying my staff as much as I could. And because flexible hours were a key award, if you like, for them, uh, I bent over backwards to accommodate that. It turns out this is quite unusual. My bosses, um, most of whom were female, were not that encouraging about it, interestingly. I think perhaps because they hadn't received that level of encouragement and support when they were young mums. And one of them actually said to me once, well, I didn't have that on the way up. I don't really see why everybody else should. So that was an interesting difference, if you like, because that was not an issue for men. But I stuck to my guns and I was rewarded with great loyalty and a very stable um, and talented team who were all very keen to return to work after they had had their children and continued to do a brilliant job for me. The other difference, I think, on reflection was that in a female environment, we created a family atmosphere. I probably knew all of the children's names of my staff. I would hear the ins and outs of love affairs and what was going wrong, et cetera, et cetera. So very much like friends and family, which was not the scenario with uh, the few male employ employees that I had. I guess sometimes that can be quite tiring because sometimes as the editor, as the leader, you're not necessarily in the mood for hearing the emotional ups and downs of your team. But again, ultimately it did feel natural. It, it was my natural way. And while it was tiring, I'm, I, I edited and led to suit my own personality as much as my teams. But I did notice as well that men were better at pushing themselves forward to me with ideas, which is interesting. They were probably less intimidated by, you know, me, the boss. And um, women on the team probably expected to be asked or waited to be asked before bringing forward ideas. So that's something for us all to reflect on. That's societal expectations, family upbringing. You know, that must be the explanation for that. And I've often reflected on that since I've left that environment. That's that's really interesting, Mari, and I'm I'm fascinated to know more about how you came to be a magazine editor. You know, what what was your journey into publishing as a woman leader, and and have you seen any changes to those experiences? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I'm glad, Sharon, that you cited our privilege at the outset. It was definitely worth doing. I probably may not have felt the privilege at the time that I entered the magazine sector. I had moved over from Ireland. I was a graduate, but I was, you know, the first person in my family to go to university. So I didn't, I, I didn't feel particularly privileged. Uh, I had no connections in, in the UK, so I had no sort of stepping stones or anybody to help me. Um, but luckily I landed in a sector that had a very meritocratic approach to hiring people. It was magazine publishing was relatively new and it was thriving. So lots of my team were actually raw talent, straight from school, probably working class, or may have had vocational education in say fashion or beauty. And um, you were generally hired on your personality and your aptitude 
but I have to say it was not at all diverse racially. I could probably count on one hand colleagues from an ethnic minority. So, you know, that's something to consider. Nowadays, you asked about what's changed. I think nowadays the magazine world has become more privileged, arguably. Um, most people who enter the magazine profession now would be graduates, which means, you know, a university degree is essential and not only a first degree, but generally there's a postgrad as well in journalism or, you know, digital publishing or whatever. So that immediately sets you apart, makes it quite a privileged environment. Um, we have also seen the rise of internships. And in my opinion, that has made the profession extremely middle class and privileged because essentially most publishing is based in London and who on earth can afford to live as an intern in London unless you're being funded by the bank of mum and dad. I think this applies to newspaper and broadcast journalism as well. So I think we should wonder how this intersectionality is influencing society. If everyone who's producing news and features content that we consume is from such a narrow sector. So that's, I'm sure you've got something to say about that, Sharon. Well, I, I do, because intersectionality is um, becoming more widely used in everyday conversations. And I guess I'd like to elaborate a bit more on, on possibly what intersectionality means to me. Um, because for me, it means where people's different minority social identities, for example, how gender, sexuality, race, ethnicity, education, class, disability, how they intersect for us as individuals and they combine or multiply to place us further into marginalized positions. So for example, if we take gender, race, ethnicity and education intersecting with a particular occupation, say managing director, then people can experience barriers and discrimination in comparison to those who are in the majority. So for example, heterosexual man, middle-class, able-bodied, white, privately educated. So while we're talking about leading women, intersectionality means, for example, that a white working-class gay man may also experience that marginalization. But when we look at those social identities, they can act independently. So such as when we have women in the minority or completely absent on company boards. So that gender is a strong effect on marginalization. And when gender intersects with race, for example, we can find even less women of color in senior leader positions or on company boards. So when we add these up, the social identities, or multiply them, it becomes clear which people are included and excluded as leaders. But we can also recognize when things are changing and what is possible, such as in your world, Mari, Edward Eninfold as the first black man editor of Vogue, in contrast to previous editors who were women. So if we bring race into the discussion about women leading, 
what has Edward Enningful, as the first black editor of Vogue, been able to do to change the magazine? And why has he been able to do it? I'm so glad you bring up Edward. I mean, it's really an extraordinary story. He has been a remarkable editor-in-chief of Vogue because he is a complete outlier. He, I would say, is the exception to everything I've just said about privilege in the world of women's magazines, especially the fashion glossies. He's, a, as you say, he's a black, working-class, gay man. And when he was appointed, he has led instantly from the front really demonstrating how, how to use power. Um, and he set about to overcome definite, definite prejudice in this world of fashion and beauty and magazines. Because of his background, he was a stylist for a long time. So he knew the industry well, he was more than qualified for his, this job as editor-in-chief of Vogue, but he knew about talent in his, his own peer group, having worked in the industry for so long. And he set about to radicalize both the staff and the content. He pretty much changed the staff virtually overnight, brought in a range of talent that was entirely diverse and replaced the old regime of white middle-class, essentially posh staff. As a consequence, you flick open the pages of Vogue nowadays and it genuinely is different. It's, it, it celebrates a much more diverse and global talent. But what's interesting about him is that he did it so quickly. He was not intimidated by the heritage. He disproved the theory that you have to do transformation gradually. He defied the naysayers and the critics who probably predicted that readers and advertisers would walk away from Vogue. They have not, they have absolutely remained and supported him. He has won awards already and has, has definitely been recognized uh, within our industry as a wonderful success. And actually, interesting, interestingly, other editors are following suit and are much more diverse aware. So his competitors, not only did he change his own magazine, he actually changed the sector. So he's a wonderful example of um, how leadership can be transformative and can be immediate. That's so inspiring, Mari so inspiring to think of that being possible and making the difference and if we if we get back to women leading and the intersection of gender and race in March this year I joined a Barclays International Women's Day event and listened to Vanessa Kingori MBE as the first black woman publishing director of Vogue she was previously publisher of British GQ across all of the platforms and Vanessa told us that she'd lived her life so far in challenger mode, always on the back foot, always the first in role to do things. We hear the word first woman or first person of colour in role far too often. There are a number of first women leading in um, FTSE companies as MD and CEO. I was a first woman dean. So we need to be on to the 20th or 30th woman and person of colour in the top leader positions. So it's no longer a first, it becomes normal. So Maria, I think there's still a, a bit of a way to go. Sharon, I couldn't agree more. I mean, Vanessa and Edward have shown, as we've 
spoken about that they are a dynamic duo but you're right they are still the first in in their roles in their respective roles I've actually I've often reflected that it's only when we really have a diverse parliament that we'll achieve real equality in society which actually is why I support quotas when selecting parliamentary candidates I guess this leads us to the ultimate question, Sharon, what, what is possible and what things with all of your academic research and data, what would you recommend to leaders, you know, when progressing gender and race equity? Well, I, I will answer the question, but first I, I just want to, to reflect on, on the quota um, comment, Mari, and supporting quotas because We've had quotas in leader positions for about 100 years. You know, we're into the fourth industrial revolution. I think it's time to rebalance those quotas. That's such a good point, Sharon. So, so what is possible? As a leader, try not to see it as such a huge hill to climb. There are a number of powerful things that you can do. So firstly, change your lens, purposefully include individuals with diverse social identities and strategically commit as the leader to increasing gender and race equity. Make this commitment public and therefore accountable. Don't rely on women and people of color or anyone in the minority to make the change. It's not up to them to fit in it's the majority that have the power to change. And as a person in power, leaders need to commit to being an ally and an advocate. Bring women and people of color into the room who wouldn't ordinarily be there. The, the, the research base shows that three plus women in leadership teams makes a positive significant difference to company performance. The research is there. And we could talk for so much longer about this evidence base on the impact of three plus on performance, for example, on better financial performance, on reducing financial risk, on improved governance and cybersecurity reporting and on innovation and decision making. So one is a token, two is a presence, but three plus have a voice. So to leaders, think of three plus as the magic number for change and positive impact. I, I think that's a powerful place to start. Thank you both so much. I'm reminded, of course, that the title of this podcast series is What is Possible? So how fascinating to hear about the characteristics and experiences emerging from another model, one that many of us would not be familiar with having distinctly different dynamics, but nonetheless familiar areas of concern around intersectionality, be that race, gender or class. Thank you once again, Mari and Sharon, for a superb discussion. Pleasure, Julian. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Julian. Thank you, Mari. Mm -hmm.